Hi, this is a podcast that walks through the divine comedy at a rather slow rate, but this episode isn't about the divine comedy, it's about Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'm a guy that used to be medievalist, then he became an Americanist, was an academic for a while, now is a full-time writer, and has somehow found himself back in the world of Dante. I've taught, I've taught the comedy oh, three times now, very recently. And I thought I'd start a podcast to just go at my speed through the Divine Comedy. But I thought for a minute that I'd stop in this episode and talk just about Dante, because you may not be familiar with this poet other than to know his name. The first thing you should know is that you're calling him a nickname. Dante is like saying Jim for James. His name is Dorante dei Alighieri. Dante is his nickname. It's like calling him Jim, which means if you've been calling him that for a while, you've been on familiar terms with this guy. Um, it's not exactly something that is taken for granted. It's like calling uh, Henry James Hank, right? There is an image of Dante. It's possibly by the painter Giotto, and we'll talk more about this later, but um, if it is by Giotto, it may have been made in Dante's lifetime. And there's an image in the Bargello Palace in Florence. Uh, it shows a rather dour, austere man in red, of course, the traditional color of Dante, red. We'll talk more about why that is later. He's standing there in complete profile. Probably the closest image we have of him. You can look it up, um, Dante in the Bargello Palace, and you can see uh, he didn't look like a fellow to be tangled with. Dante was born sometime uh, late May to late June in eight in uh, 18, listen to me, in 1264 or 1265, somewhere in there. <laughs> I'm going to get him up with uh, Henry Fielding in a minute. Um, uh, somewhere in there, 1264, 65. But there's a little bit of a hitch to that. We don't actually know the year that Dante was born. What we know, if you listen to the first episode, is that the, the comedy starts out midway or in the middle of the journey of our life. A lot of commentators have made sense of that by saying there is a biblical pronouncement that a human is given three score and ten years, 70 years, three score and ten years, and if Dante is midway, he's 35, and if he's 35 in the year 1300, which is the year that the comedy is set, therefore he was born in 1265. Okay, you heard this only from me. You did not hear this from any great literature professor, but that is super specious reasoning. That, that is making an assumption, A, that the word midway is absolutely a set in Dante, that he means exactly mathematically midway. It also indicates that Dante is not taking some allowances with his own biography, which I think he is. There's all kinds of problems with that dating, and it causes other problems with dating Dante's life itself. Listen, every single big shot professor out there takes 1264 or 1265 AD, or now, as we now say, common era, as the birth year of his life. I'm not sure, because they're basing most of that on a date from the poem, from the opening line, which is said in 1300. Uh, I just want to say that the dating of the of the journey in the comedy is in 1300. I just want to reiterate that. Um, I actually uh, take the date as March 24th. I follow the Hollanders at Princeton and take March 24th as the date. A lot of other people take April 7th, but we'll talk more about that uh, exactly when we get to dating problems in the poem. But let's just say it's Easter weekend in 1300. 
To understand Dante, we have to go back before his birth, all the way back to the year 1215, so at least 50 years, or around 50 years before his birth, if you accept that dating problem. Um, remember, listen, remember we are in a world here long before computers, long before social media, right? Long before public records, long before the printing press. So we're looking through scrim on scrim on scrim on scrim into opaque history and trying to figure it out. And Dante is not a landed noble or a, a member of the royalty, so there's not going to be as many records about him. There's a surprising amount of records about Dante, but there's not going to be, uh, you know, the level that there would be for, I don't know, some Pope Boniface VIII, where there would be lots of records for him. Okay, but we're going to go back to the year 1215. It's a few months before Easter, and there is a local Florentine warlord, Juan del Monte. And Juan del Monte, um, he's, he's got a little problem with alcohol, and he gets a little drunk at a banquet, and he stabs the arm of a very prominent of, a, of the arm of a member of a very prominent family, the Amadeis. Not good in a world of warlords. So as fit punishment, the Florentine officials demand that he marry one of the Amadei daughters. Um, this seems like, I guess, a fair trade. <laughs> Stab one of them, have to marry one of their daughters. Um, so on the appointed day, uh, all the clans gather in the piazza in Florence, and Juan del Monte shows up. All the Amadei and all of their family and their, you know, kindred clans and allegiances are there. And Juan del Monte is clearly braver than I. He rides right past them and right up to the Donati family and asks for the hand of one of their daughters, thereby dissing the Amadeis and the whole Florentine political structure. Marriages at this time are often carried out on Easter Sunday as our baptisms. So on Easter morning, on his way to his marriage, the Amadei clan get their revenge. They ambush Juan del Monte at the Ponte Vecchio. You probably know this bridge if you've been to Florence. It's the, it's the famous bridge right across the Arno, the Ponte Vecchio. They murder him right off his horse. Um, and this begins the troubles. Here's why. The Amadei are aligned with the Ghibellines. I'll tell you what that means in just a minute. And the Donatis are aligned with the Guelphs. And so this familial tribal warfare amongst rival, what can almost be called gangs, rival gangs is brought into focus by a more international feud that is going on. And the familial fight and the international fight suddenly coalesce and Florence erupts in violence. Okay, a little bit about Guelph and Ghibelline. The Amadeus, as I said, are connected with the Ghibelline clan, and the Donatis, whose hand he's asked for, are with the Guelphs. Basically put, the Ghibellines are the landed nobility. That's not exactly true. There's some there's some fudging around in that. But for let now, let's say the Ghibellines are mostly the landed nobility. 
And the Guelphs are mostly what we might call the middle class. That is, they're the bankers, the importers, the exporters, maybe upper middle class in modern terms. But you should know that this is actually an international problem because Ghibelline is, well, it's from the German, Weiblingen, and Guelph is from the German, Welf. It's really the Weiblingen and the Welf parties. How this starts, it's a German problem. It starts with the coronation of Lothar II as Holy Roman Emperor way back in 1133. Lothar II is supported by the Pope. The Pope wants Lothar II to be the Holy Roman Emperor, and the very powerful Hohenstaufen dynasty inside the Holy Roman Empire does not want Lothar II to be the Holy Roman Emperor. That faction between the Hohenstaufens and the papal interests is what sets up this feud between the Welf and Weiblingen, which when it gets to Italy is reinterpreted as the Guelph and Ghibelline. In other words, the Guelphs the Welfs, the Donati clan, are the party of the papacy. And the Ghibellines, the Weibling, and the Amadei clan, and all their hangers-on, are the party of the Holy Roman Empire. That division is incredibly important to the war that hits Tuscany and to Dante's poem, the comedy. Uh, and let me just say, let me just add as an afterthought, if you are aligned with the papacy, as are the Guelphs or the Welfs and the Donati clan and all of them, if you're aligned with the papacy, then by extension, you're aligned with France because France is desperately trying to assert its dominance through its kind of alliance or even control of the papal see. Sounds confusing, right? It's a bloody mess. And once it devolves into family conflict, it becomes even worse. And this all ends in 1260 at the Battle of Monteperti. I talked about this last time. I talked about the Battle of Monteperti, what happens there. I talked about a poet and his experience with it, etc. All of that stuff with Bernardo Latini. But in 1260, this all really erupts in the Battle of Monteperti. It is the bloodiest battle in medieval Italy between Guelphs and Ghibellines between Donatis and Amdeis and many, many other families. In fact, it rivals the bloodiest battles ever in medieval Europe. There are thought to be about around 10,000 casualties at the Battle of Monteperti. An unbelievable bloodfest that is ultimately the battle is decided by an act of treachery. Um, and in the battle, we should say that the Ghibellines defeat the Guelphs, that is, the party of the Holy Roman Empire defeats the party of the papacy and France, that is, the Amadei clan defeats the Donati clan and all of their hangers-on, as I say. Um, we're going to meet two key figures in this battle later. They're both in hell. We're going to meet Ferranata dei Uberti, uh, not too far down the road. We will see him in all of his glory. And then we will see way down at the very bottom of hell, Boca de Abati, who is another figure from this Battle of Monteperti. So this is going to come up several times in order to understand what's going on inside the comedy and why these figures are placed in hell and why they act the way they do in hell. But for now, let's just say that just before, if Dante was in fact born in 1265, just before he was born, this terrible battle takes place. The Guelphs are destroyed in this battle. 
Israel banished from Tuscany, and the Ghibellines appear to have gained a momentary control. I should also mention that the Ghibellines, the Amadei family, are aligned with Siena. The French insert themselves into this family and international clash and reinstate the Guelphs, because of course they're the papal party who France supports, and they throw out the Ghibellines. They, they they basically destroy them in Florence, but not necessarily in Italy. There are Ghibellines running all around Italy, but they certainly put an end to Ghibelline influence. Only six years after this horrible, bloody Battle of Monteperte, they put an end to the Ghibelline power in Florence and reinstate the Guelph clan, therefore aligning... Tuscany and Florence, well, Florence particularly, not necessarily Tuscany, but Florence particularly, aligning it with the Papal See. Of course, things are not that easy. The Guelphs, who have been in power and placed in power by the French in 1266, eventually split into two parties. They split into the Whites, who are sometimes called the Forest Party. Uh, they're the Cherokee family and all its allies, including the Alighieri's, including Dante's family. The Whites, they split and become one faction, and the Blacks become the other part of the Guelph faction. The main part of the Donati family and all their allies are Blacks. So Dante is a white Guelph. Okay, so Dante himself is born out in the countryside, not in Florence, but in the countryside. He's born to a not well-off family, um, you know, a, a respectable family, one long involved in Florentine politics, but not a well-off family and certainly not a noble family. We do know that Dante's mother dies when he's fairly young, maybe four, maybe seven, and we know his father dies when he's about 16. This may sound as if he's an orphan, but a 16-year-old in 12 uh, uh, let's just say 1280, 1275, 80, 85, a 16-year-old is a man, uh, and he would be responsible for his own upkeep by the time he's 16, and in fact, he is responsible for his own upkeep, as we'll see. Sometime, maybe about 1274, and this dating is also difficult based on the dating of Dante's birth, but sometimes let's pretend it's 1274 or say it's right. Dante meets Beatrice. Beatrice, or Bice, as her family calls her, Bice, or Beatrice di Folco Portanari. He meets her at a garden party. Wow, there's a Herman Holiday pre-Raphaelite painting that you can look up where Dante's standing on a bridge of the Arno and Beatrice's walking along and she's with her girlfriends and oh, they all look like, wow, I think Dante's even got a few lines on his face. The truth of the matter is, Dante's nine when they meet, thus the dating of 1274 if he's born in 1265. He's nine. He falls head over heels for her and he never marries her. Dante eventually marries a less austere and less well-placed woman, Gemma Donati. Dante never once mentions Gemma Donati in any poem or any essay he ever wrote. He's arranged to be married to her at the age of 12 and probably marries her about the age of 20, maybe. They have four children, 
And these children uh, are incredibly important because two of them become the first commentators on their father's poem. They write the first commentaries or some of the first commentaries on the poem. And interestingly, the daughter ends up taking vows as a nun. And here's the part that's so weird. She chooses as her nun's name, her saint's name, Sister Beatrice. So she names herself after this woman that Dante claims to have fallen in love with. Now, let me just tell you that all of this is a little bit problematic, and here's why the dating is so weirdly problematic. Dante claims to meet Beatrice when he's nine. He's going to have another meeting of her when he's 18. It's not going to go well. She's going to basically diss him. The reason that's not maybe not exactly right is just think about that. He has, think about who Dante is. Dante will believe himself to be the best Christian, and by that I mean the best Catholic ever, and he meets her when he's 9, 18, all multiples of 3. And in fact, 9 is particularly the number of perfection because it's the Trinity times the Trinity, 3 times 3. So, is this in fact the truth? Is If it is, wow, I mean, if it is, it is divinely foreordained. And certainly many commentators, especially medieval commentators of the comedy, think it is all divinely foreordained. I have a feeling Dante is, um, shall we say, brewing the tea a little steep. Uh, I'm not exactly convinced that all of that is exactly the way it happened, but I can tell you that Beatrice must have had a profound influence on this man. And there is no way she can have appeared in, in his works, and uh, particularly in the comedy the way she does, without having some kind of resonance inside of him. When Dante's about 18, he begins studying with Brunetto Latini. And if you remember last time I talked about Latini and his poem, Il Tesseretto, and um, this is controversial. I should say he begins studying under Latini. It's not necessarily clear if he studies with him. Um, it may be that he studies at a school where Latini is. We'll talk more about this since Latini, like all teachers, is in hell. And so since Latini's in hell, I'll wait and talk a bit more about him when we get to him down in hell. Um, <laughs> let's just say that he studies with Latini and around the same time, perhaps, uh, Beatrice herself marries a Florentine banker around 1287. We don't actually have any records of their marriage, but we know about this because of her father's will. And Beatrice, Piche dies of unknown causes around 1290. The early commentators of the Divine Comedy claim that Latini introduced Dante to classical works like those of Cicero and Boethius as a compensation for the death of Beatrice. Maybe. They also may be justifying Latini's place in the poem as much as they're talking about any actual events. We'll talk way more about that when we reach Brunetto Latini burning up in hell. But I can say this, if you look at that fresco in the Bargello Palace in Florence of Dante that maybe Giotto painted or maybe one of his students, the fellow right behind Dante is Brunetto Latini. They're standing sort of uh, in a line in profile. Someone, Giotto, one of his students, thought that they were linked or successive or sequential or connected in some fundamental way. About 1300, that is the year that the comedy is set, 
Dante becomes the white Guelph ambassador from Florence to San Gimignano. Um, Dante, uh, even for a while around this period, becomes uh, what we might call the mayor of Florence. It's not the mayor, but it's a cyclical term uh, uh, on the ruling white Guelph council of Florence. And it looks like Dante's got a political career in front of him. But then comes the villain. Pope Boniface VIII. Pope from 1294 to 1303. The Pope is opposed to the white Gels. Pope Boniface VIII is Dante's great villain. We'll see him in the comedy, and uh, we'll see references to him. We won't actually see him, but we'll certainly see references to him. Um, and he is definitely a bad figure for Dante. He attempts to escalate the fight in Tuscany. Um, Dante opposes the sending of papal troops into Tuscany. Uh, the Pope sends them anyway, and with the French crown, ultimately puts an end to white Guelph power. Dante is convicted as a white Guelph on January 27, 1302, on the charges of baritry, that is, the selling of political office for money, extortion, and resistance to church authority. His whereabouts at this time are not known. It is theorized by the early com commentators that he was Pope Boniface VIII's prisoner in Rome, that he'd been on an ambassadorial mission, was taken prisoner, etc., and that he's in Rome. It's a little unclear, and it's a little unclear how he would get out of Rome. All we can say for absolute certain is that he is convicted on January 27, 1302, in Florence of charges of baritary extortion and resistance, and he is banished for life from Florence by the newly installed Black Guelph leadership on March 10, 1302, and banished on pain of the death of his family. If he ever appears in Florence again, his wife and children will be put to death. And for the rest of his life, he is on the run. Now, let me just say one thing before we go on. Let me just point out that I have not yet mentioned writing the comedy. All this happens before the comedy gets written by Dante. So it's just important to hear all of this. And listen, I'm going to come back to it many, many times over the course of this podcast. Dante resurfaces in Verona in May 1303 at the home of Bartolomeo della Scala, a local warlord. He is a known Ghibelline, which means he's aligned with the Holy Roman Empire, which Dante is aligned with as a white Guelph. Dante, in fact, becomes the leader at this point of the white Guelphs in exile. And he takes up with this man, this local warlord, for a bit in Verona for protective reasons. In 1304, we know that Dante moves to Arezzo, a town in Tuscany, and it is in Arezzo that Dante proclaims himself a party of one. Now, let me just explain this for a moment. This man who had been the leader of the White Guelph suddenly to call himself a party of one is absolutely revolutionary. Here's why. You know, in the opening of the comedy from last time, remember he wakes up in a dark wood for the straightway of his lost. And remember I said it's almost existential? Well, it's a little more than that. It's terrifying because here's why. No one in the 1300s is ever alone or should ever be alone. If you wake up in a dark wood by yourself, you are subject to bandits, thieves, murderers. You are in a bad spot 
wild animals. The one thing you want to be is connected. Because if you're connected to a local warlord, then he's responsible for your protection. If you wake up in a wood all by yourself, you're in a bad spot. And in fact, to declare yourself a party of one in this warlord landscape is wild. You're basically saying that nobody is your protector or that you're your own protector. No one can say that. Okay, maybe a warlord himself can say it, right? But it's 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 like trying to, I don't know what, it's like trying, are you watching have you watched Ozark on uh, Netflix? I mean, it's like that. It would be like you're playing with drug cartels and suddenly you decide you don't want to be connected to any of them. You're, you're going to get in a lot of trouble really fast. And declare himself a party of one is like waking up in a dark wood. It's scary. It's not to be done in the Middle Ages. It is most likely in Arezzo, however, that he gets the idea of writing the comedy. Um, I should note, and uh, since I've danced around this many times, I'll just say Dante never called it the Divine Comedy. That's the name that Boccaccio gave it. As we'll see, Dante just calls it comedy. It'll come up in the poem. He's just going to call it comedy without the definite article. The oldest fragment of comedy in a Milan library is from about 1331. That's a little bit after Dante's death, but it's probably around 1304 when he's in Arezzo that he gets the idea of writing this poem, and he writes it over the rest of his life. I should note that there are uh, there are more than 800 handwritten copies of the comedy that still exist. They're still around out there from just a bit after Dante's day. There's none in his own hand, but just a bit after Dante's day. And that is an astounding number. Over 800 copies in a time when there aren't printing presses, it's unbelievable. Just think about it. If you know anything about Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, there are two main manuscripts and about 60 partial manuscripts for the Canterbury Tales. And the Canterbury Tales is super important. This tells you how important the comedy was when it was written. Um, just to, as a sidelight, uh, the comedy goes into a print for the first time in 1555. That's about 75 years after Caxton opens his printing operation in London. So it's, it's being handwritten for a good while. Okay, so next thing, 1305, just maybe the next year, year or two later, a member of the French noble family, Raymond Bertrand de Gaulle, he is elected Pope Clement V. And here's what's so big. A, he's French. And B, he's elected in Gascony, in France. In fact, Pope Clement V, as he will become, never once sets foot in Rome. Now, if you know anything about how popes are chosen, you know that that whole thing about the Vatican and the smoke out of the chimney and picking them in Rome and yada, yada, yada. No way. Oh, Raymond Bertrand de Gaulle decides, forget it. I'm going to set up the papal curia in Avignon. Dante will never live to see the papacy restored to Rome. For him, the church will always be in exile, just as he is. It will always be somewhere else, not in the place it's supposed to be, just as he. He might be on the run, and it might be, uh, you know, established in Avignon, but there is a profound linkage for Dante between the papacy in exile and his own exile.
1312, Dante's back in Verona, and this time he's under the patronage of Can Grande, the first della Scala. He's Bartolomeo's younger brother. He's also a Ghibelline, so Holy Roman Empire supporter. Um, and Can Grande uh, just means big Khan, you know, like Genghis Khan. Can Grande is the big Khan, the big leader. And Can Grande is quite a figure. I mean, not only does he control Veroni, he controls Padua, he Reviso. Uh, he's a powerful warlord. Um, and he becomes Dante's patron. Unclear if he becomes his protector, but certainly he becomes his patron. And Dante stays there until 1318. There's some people who claim that Dante, well, Boccaccio, to be honest, it's Boccaccio claims, that Dante never wrote a passage in the comedy without showing it to Con Grande. I don't know that that's true. That sounds like Boccaccio's hagiography to me. It sounds like something you made up for, for Dante. Um, there's a spurious letter. It may or may not be attributed to Dante. It's hard to tell. If it is, Dante dedicates the Paradiso, the last third of the comedy, to Con Grande. Most scholars, I think, these days think that letter is a fake, written after Dante's death. So Boccaccio may be building off that. It's hard to know. It is it is safe to say that Can Grande has a, a settling influence on Dante. He has he comes off the road, and he's able to settle down. And some of his most productive writing happens when he's under the care of Can Grande. By 1318, Dante has moved on, though. He moves to Ravenna, and he becomes the guest of Guido Novella da Polenta, a great patron of the arts. Uh, getting a patronage from Guido Novella da Polenta is, is a coup in Dante's day. It allows him a very prestigious uh, vantage point. It's like getting a MacArthur Fellowship. Dante, however, stays friends with Cangande. We know he returns to Verona in 1320 to lecture. It's not, there's no rupture with Cangrande, but it's just, you know, getting a much more favorable artistic perch. In 1321, Dante is well-placed enough that he is sent on a diplomatic mission to Venice for Guido Novella de Polenta and for the family. And it is here on this diplomatic mission to Venice in 1321 that Dante catches a fever in the fetid lagoons. He dies on his way back to Ravenna only a few months or maybe even only a few weeks after finishing comedy, after finishing the last part, Paradiso. He is buried in Ravenna outside of the Basilica, which was then a Franciscan monastery church. He's buried just outside the walls. Today, there is a large tomb, a kind of neoclassical edifice over his tomb. Uh, I should note that he's buried in an ancient Roman sarcophagus, which indicates his worth uh, at the time. But he was just buried in the ground. Now, as I say, there's this kind of neoclassical mm, small tomb chapel things <laughs> set up over the grave. The structure is erected much later. There is a tomb in Florence. I've seen people taking pictures of it. It's in Santa Croce, the church. There is a tomb there for Dante. Dante's not in it. The Florentine authorities set up this tomb on the hopes that they could one day get Dante's body back. They do not get his body back. And so that tomb in Florence in Santa Croce is empty. Dante is in Ravenna. So that's a quick, maybe not so quick, I seem to have gone on a long time, a quick biographical sketch. This poet wrote the greatest poem 
in Western literature, as I've said. He wrote it on the run. For those of you who feel like you need to sit at your desk in quiet and write, he never returned to Florence nor to his family. He always felt the pain of exile. And let me say, and we'll talk about this later, nothing in Dante's output of anything he wrote before comedy could prepare us for the notion that he could write comedy. He did write things before comedy, before this poem. Nothing compares. If he hadn't written comedy, Dante would be a minor poet who is, you know, part of a PhD exam in medieval Italian literature. He'd, he'd be one of those questions they ask to get you and to make sure you've really studied everything. But that he wrote the comedy, it changes everything. And he comes upon this poem on the road, on the run, in incredible danger. You know, uh, he, there's basically a warrant out for him. There's probably bounties out on his head. He's in a terrible strait, running by himself, trying to slip from warlord to warlord to stay alive. And in all of that hassle, crazy, unbelievable, mind-bending pressure, he writes comedy. I hope you enjoyed this podcast of Walking with Dante. I hope you learned something about Dante's life. Next episode, we're going to go back to the poem and stick there for a while. I may jump out a little bit to talk to you about the difference between art in the 1200s and art in the 1300s, but mostly from now on, we'll stick with the poem itself. Oh, I probably should actually do an episode about the structure of the poem, but that's to come. Let's, let's leave that. Next time, let's jump back to the lines of the poem and follow Dante as he walks. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'd love it if you could subscribe to this podcast if you can give it a rating that would be fabulous and i would love to have you back next time for another episode of walking with dante